Thank you, Riley and the band for leading us in worship tonight. I'm grateful to be back together with you guys here Friday night at GOC. Um, Chris is actually at a, uh, a retreat. He's preaching at a retreat. So if you could remember to pray for him this weekend, he'll be preaching a few times and fellowshipping with uh, a church's uh, career and young adult group um, this um, weekend. Um, and I guess Trump decided that it was then safe to get in town because Chris is gone. So um, uh, it took a while to get here, but I'm glad to be here. Um, thanks for, for making it out. Thanks for being here uh, tonight. We're going to continue in our study in Romans where uh, we've gone through all of the first seven chapters, and so we're finally here in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Um, I feel almost as if Chris did all the hard work in Romans. I feel kind of cheap, uh, kind of like a freeloader or like a, like a leech or an opportunist or something. It's like fourth quarter warriors, all the scrubs come in after Durant's done all the hard work. Um, so why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 will be in verses 1 through 4. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Listen as I read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, now... Open the eyes of our hearts that we might be enlightened to your word. Jesus, would you be put on display, and Spirit, would you work as we see the truth of your word tonight. In your Son's name, amen. So to begin tonight, I want you to think of the last place in nature that you went, where you could look down from a high place onto a vast area below. Think of the last place you went that was like that. Could be Potato Chip Rock, the Grand Canyon maybe. If you're lucky, it was maybe Niagara Falls. Um, or maybe just a random cliff by the ocean. And I want you to think of that place and think specifically of the feeling that you got as you stepped toward the edge and perhaps even shuffled your toes a little bit to get closer to look over the edge of that cliff or that rock. Think of the power of perspective in that moment as you stared down at the, the ocean or the canyon or the rocks, whatever it is below. You perhaps think of the wildlife below. Uh, you think of the vastness of the earth as you look down in that moment. Uh, maybe you think of how much, the world, how much of the world no man has ever set foot upon as you look down. But maybe if you're like me, you're drawn back to how thankful you are that you're on solid ground. And take a few steps back, maybe. Our passage tonight, Romans 8, is one such place in Scripture. It is, it is one of the mountaintops of the New Testament, from which we can look down and gain perspective. And as we look down from this, this vista of Romans 8, 1 through 4, we see the groundwork of the entire book of Romans. We see the graveyard of man's sinfulness. We see God's condemnation of that sin, and the joyous news of peace with God through faith. Our passage is one of the most succinct and powerful overviews of gospel truth in all of Scripture. The chapter as a whole is rightfully one of the most quoted and most beloved in all of the Bible. The chapter begins here, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with no separation from the love of God. Chapter 8 is full of rich, God-glorifying truth. And I'm convinced, Grace on Campus, if it isn't already, 
Romans chapter 8 ought to be one of the most highlighted, one of the most underlined, one of those most wrinkly because you use it so much, one of the most tear-soaked pages in your entire Bible. And if it's not already, it should be by the end of this quarter. I'm excited to dig into Romans chapter 8 with you tonight, and I'm excited as uh, David and Jesse and Chris continue to study through Romans 8, because I think it will be life-changing for you this time that we go through it, because we'll be reminded of the sweet truths of Scripture in this fine chapter. So tonight we begin the ascent to this great summit. We'll see the amazing truth tonight that simply we we are no longer condemned. We are no longer condemned. We'll see that God has lifted the condemnation we so rightly deserve, and he has set us free from sin so that we would walk by his Spirit. God has lifted the condemnation we so rightly deserve and has set us free from sin so that we would walk by his Spirit. As we start a new quarter here, I'm sure your focus in your life coming into the night is on what's ahead on this quarter, and rightly so. Maybe it's your course load, maybe it's graduating at the end of this quarter, maybe it's the busyness, maybe it's a transition to another place or another country coming up that you're looking forward to. This passage is a wake-up call to the incredibly rich mercy of God in your life and the attention that it deserves tonight and in all of your life. It's a signpost for appreciation of gospel truth. And so it should grab our attention tonight and help steer the rest of where we're going with the gospel. But if this group is anything like any other subset of people in this world, this passage tonight will do more than just that. If this group is like any other group in the entire world, some are weary, some are wounded, some are struggling, some are doubting. This is truth to comfort the weary. This is to bring healing to the wounded. This passage brings support to the struggling. It assures the doubting. And so we see in Romans 8 tonight that we are no longer condemned. We'll see that in, in three marks of those who are no longer condemned. Three marks of those who are no longer condemned. First, in verse 1, we see that those who are no longer condemned are united with Christ. United with Christ. Look again at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The words, there is, therefore, now, therefore, specifically, shows us this is a summary, a conclusion of what we have seen in the entire book so far. Romans has shown us the righteousness of God is revealed to man. Romans has shown us how, it ex- how the righteousness of God exposes the sin of every man and condemns every man beho- before a holy God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans has shown us How the righteousness of God is manifested through faith then. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we can have peace with God. Romans has shown us how because of the righteousness of God imputed to us, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans has shown us so much about the righteousness of a holy God. Now Paul, as he looks back on the great truth he has unfolded so far, he summarizes now with this great declaration, this, this, this proclamation of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, since we've been in the book, it's no surprise in a sense. It's the case Paul's been building for several, several chapters now. That it is by justification, by faith alone in Jesus Christ that man can be made right with God. Paul has explained and proven this from several angles now. This, this unbelievable, this unimaginable gospel truth. And it is here, though, in chapter 8 that he declares this, this no condemnation status and says, I've been 
I've been telling you over and over. I've been explaining it to you over and over. I've taken several angles at it over and over. But now, here in chapter 8, Paul says, in a sense, let me show you. I'm not going to just tell you about it. Let me show you. Let me assure you that this is true. That if you are in Christ Jesus, let me show you that this is true. Now the word condemnation paints a legal picture. It entails the the pronouncement of, of guilt, but it also involves the carrying out of that punishment. And so Paul is saying, not only are you not guilty in the courtroom, you are not guilty because you're not in the jail room either. This legal picture helps us to imagine. We stand before God. We stand before the righteous judge. And the evidence so far in Romans presented is an open and shut case against us. Guilty. We stand before the Creator doubly guilty. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Turn to chapter 3 with me and we'll see just yet again how true this is, that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 10. It says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are, shi- are, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23, we all know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we choose to sin. We choose to do. We choose to think. We choose to feel things that are in rebellion against God our Creator. And Romans makes that clear. That God who created us to reflect His character and His nature, we instead choose sin. We choose ourselves. We choose things that are in front to our God. Romans 5 details how our sin is also in our nature, not just in our choice, but also in our nature, how through Adam we all inherited this this sinful nature, this sin nature, this disposition that all of mankind has to sin against God. Romans 5, 12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. So because of our sin, both by nature and by choice, we stand condemned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It's what is earned, the wage of sin. Chapter 1, verse 27 calls this the due penalty for their error. So what we justly deserve for our sin is a death sentence for our sin against our Creator. And as we've seen throughout Romans, this death sentence is eternity in hell. It's separation from a holy God. Now this, all of this truth, is why this declaration of no condemnation status is such good news. It's the gospel. This is why it is so unbelievable, so unimaginable, so undeserved. If you are a Christian tonight, this contrast, contrast should stoke the flames of your gratefulness to a gracious God. I think so often we think the gospel should be easy to believe. It should be easy to believe when you share it with someone. It should be easy to believe when you see the sin in someone else's life and you think, why don't you believe the gospel in this moment, brother? We think it's so easy to believe because we receive something from it, right? You get something from it. You receive eternal life. Who would not want that? It's easy to believe. But if we understand the gospel right, it should be hard to believe because it is that good of news. It is that unbelievable, that out of this world because of God's amazing and astounding grace. It is that unimaginable to our human minds 
because of the richness of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. It is that amazing because of God's undeserved favor on us as sinners. Grace on campus, if you are a Christian, you are no longer condemned. And it's against this darkest of backdrops throughout the beginning of Romans that Paul shines a beacon of gospel truth here. He declares there is now no condemnation. Exonerated, scot-free, not guilty. We stand before God, the righteous judge, and all of the evidence points to a guilty verdict, to a death sentence, but instead the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us here there is now no condemnation. The penalty we so rightly deserved, it's lifted. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice this guilty, this not guilty verdict is reserved for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ was condemned instead on our behalf. Christ bore the punishment we deserved. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But what Paul is pointing out here is not just that Christ died for us in a transactional, disconnected, even courtroom kind of way. He's pointing out that this no condemnation status is for those who are in Christ Jesus. This no condemnation status is for those who are united with Christ. This no condemnation status is for those, those who are rooted in their union with Christ, we call it. This is a truth, this is a concept we've explored in, in Romans 6. Um, the truth that we were united with him in his death. That we might be considering ourselves dead to sin. And just as God raised him from the dead, united with Christ, we were raised to walk in newness of life. And so in salvation, when you placed your faith in, in Christ, you were joined to Christ, Romans 6 says. You were made one with him, we would say, or placed into this mystical union with him. Such that you can say, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so it is by this union with Christ, this, this oneness with him, this being in Christ Jesus, that Paul says there is now no condemnation. This no condemnation status is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you sit there tonight and you know you are not in Christ Jesus, in the sense that you have not placed your faith in him, you don't know Jesus savingly, you are not in Christ. And so, rightly, the condemnation of a holy God comes upon you. This passage has no application to you in the sense that I'm speaking. And so I would urge you, before the night is done, talk to someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk to someone about how you may be redeemed by a gracious Savior and that you would be in Christ Jesus. You know, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Him, there is no condemnation. You know what this means? No sin that you can commit, past, present, or future, will be held against you. If you are truly in Christ, there is nothing you can do that will compromise your salvation, or your standing in Christ, or your relationship with God. Christian, find comfort here. The passage Chris helped us navigate last time in Romans 7 is just such a, a, a difficult passage. It's a, it's a mind-boggling one in that sense it's difficult, but it's also a difficult one to work through 
because it depicts the very struggle I know most of us go through. Listen again to that passage, Romans 7. This is our battle inside. For I delight in the law of God, Paul says, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we get stuck. We get stuck in verse 24. But read on, read on, Christian. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a faithful God who is faithful to you in the struggle and in the doubt. There is a loving God who loves you through the sleepless nights. After long days of doubt and and repentance and searching and more doubt and more struggle, this truth, this truth is the pillow upon which you can rest your weary soul. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, how does this work? How is it that in Christ we receive no condemnation? It sounds almost too good to be true, right? Well, Paul pops the hood and lets us see the the inner workings of our no condemnation status in verses 2 and 3. So we've seen the first mark of those who are no longer condemned, and that is that we are united with Christ. And in verses 2 and 3, we see that we are set free from sin. We are set free from sin. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now verse 2 begins with this word for. So it provides the reason or the grounds for how we can say There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we have seen this truth, again, several times before in our study of Romans, have we not? That God has set us free from sin, and that we are no longer slaves to unrighteousness, but we have been set free, and we are now slaves of righteousness. Now, here Paul lets us see how this spiritual reality of no condemnation works. It's the power of of the Holy Spirit at work. Now, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned one other time so far in Romans, and that's in chapter 5, verse 5. And in this chapter, Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. Now, why this sudden appearance? It is only through the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, that any of this can be accomplished. And so Paul comprehensively explains how the Spirit is involved, not only in our salvation, but in our sanctification. And it is Paul's emphasis on the Spirit's centrality in the Christian life that helps us to see, then, his work of assurance in our salvation. That truly there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because, Paul will show us, you can see it in how the Spirit works in your life. You see, you can be sure that you are saved. You can be sure that Christ died for your sins and that God sent his only son to do that because you will see, as Paul says here, the Spirit's work in your life. It is by that work you can be assured. Now Paul says here, it is the law of the Spirit of life that has set us free from the law of sin and death. And like we've seen before in Romans, law here refers to not so much the law, capital L, but 
a rule or a principle or an authority. We've seen this in 327 and several times again in chapter 6 and 7. It is the law or the rule, the principle, the authority of the spirit of life here, the Holy Spirit that sets us free. Um, Our own Pastor John says this of this passage. He says, that's, quote, that's just a long way of saying the gospel. Um, I love that. So it's this principle, this this rule, this law, as the text says, of the spirit of life that has set us free from the law, again, principle or rule or authority of sin and death, and the first has set us free from the second. Now we see the interplay of these two principles summarized in part, at least, in Romans 6.23. Think back on that chapter, flip back if you want. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's the law of sin and death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the law of the spirit of life. And so for those who have faith in Christ, the first law, the law of sin and death, is overtaken by the second, the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so the Spirit, through the gospel, has set us free, past tense, from sin and its death sentence. So even though we, like the believing Paul, still struggle against the law of sin in my members, 7.23, we see here in chapter 8 that the Spirit has set you free decisively, finally. Now maybe not fully while still in the flesh, but notice again how. The text says, in Christ Jesus. You see this through the power of Christ's death and resurrection, that we have died to sin and been raised to life, being set free from the law of sin and death in the process. We are now under the law, under the authority of the spirit of life as those who are in Christ Jesus, and we are no longer condemned to death, Paul says here. Verse 3 gives an even deeper look at the inner workings of our no-condemnation status. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now trace the logic here with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On what basis? The text says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. The question again might be, well, on what basis have we been been set free? On what basis has the law of the spirit of life set us free? And here we see our answer. The text says, God has done what the law, and now this does refer to God's law, capital L, God has done what the law could not do. Now there's a lot going on in this verse. So let's look look specifically at the main action, the main verb in this verse. So the question would be, what has God done that the law could not do? He condemned sin in the flesh. There at the end of the verse. He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, in order to to accomplish the the no-condemnation status of those who are in Christ, God condemned sin, that is, he, he conquered sin, he overpowered sin, and made sinners righteous. And how did he do it? He did so in the flesh. That is, he conquered sin via the fleshly, the bodily, the real sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, in lifting sin's condemnation from us, God instead condemned, not us, but sin in the flesh, rendering it powerless over those who are in Christ. Paul lifts up his praise in 1 Corinthians 15 for God's victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God conquered sin by condemning it in the fleshly sacrifice of Christ 
once and for all. This is what the law could not do. No, it's not the no no, it's not that the law of God had any inherent weakness, right? We've seen this affirmed over and over and over throughout Romans, that the law of God is is good, that the law of God is holy, that the law of God is is righteous. Instead, this text says it was man's flesh, man's sinful nature that rendered it ineffective. One commentator says this of this passage. Law can stimulate sin, but when it comes to overcoming it, our sinful nature undermines its best efforts. You see, the law, even in its God-given design to God's people, its system of sacrifices for sin, its instruction for, for living a life of love for God and neighbor, its blueprints for the tabernacle even, and its worship, the law could not overcome sin it only stirred up the rebellion of god's own people against a holy god and his righteous demands such that over and over and over and over god's own people his own possession did whatever seemed right in their own eyes hebrews 10 1 through 2 speaks of this sort of frustration of the law For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so all of this, God's people under God's law, disobeying him despite God's law, all of this pointed to the need for a Messiah, a perfect sacrifice that would not have to be offered every year. It pointed to a Messiah who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would be crushed for our iniquities, The chastening for our well-being was to fall upon him. And so God did what the law could not do. He condemned sin so that we would not be condemned. And he did this by sending his own son, Jesus. Look back at Romans 8. Paul says here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Philippians 2, verse 7, puts it this way, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now here in Romans 8, Paul uses what may be to us slightly awkward phrasing, right? He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he does so to carefully portray what's necessary as he talks about Christ's incarnation. Now, I don't like imagining usually what the authors of Scripture didn't write. But if Paul had written in the likeness of flesh, that would be what we call docetism, an erroneous view of Christ's existence not being real or fleshly or human, not a real bodily existence. If maybe Paul wrote something like, in sinful flesh, simply. That would imply he had sin, and we know that Christ did not. not. So Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to carefully communicate Christ's very real, yet perfectly sinless humanity. Hebrews 2, verse 17, explains it this way, Therefore he had to be made like his brother's in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And back here in Romans 8, Paul also includes here the atoning purpose in Christ's incarnation. At the end of verse 3, look, there it says, and for sin. Some translations render this, quote, as a sin offering. 
Christ came to die for our sins as an atonement for sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 on. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We see here in salvation, in the setting us free from sin, we see the Trinity at work. God sending His own Son the Son coming, and then the power of the Spirit working to apply that salvation. And I would say most vividly here in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit's work is so distinct because it's not been in Romans before this very much. By virtue of the Spirit's work and setting you free from sin, sin has no hold on you tonight, Christian. Definitively so. As you struggle in the flesh in this fallen world, the Spirit is working in you to progressively make you more and more like your Savior until finally and fully we will be free from sin in eternity. But for now, as you struggle, it is enough to know not only does God not condemn you, verse 1, Verse 3, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is powerless against you in your standing before God because God has dealt with it. One of our favorite songs says this so well. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. We are no longer condemned, and God has condemned sin in the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've seen that we are no longer condemned, that we're marked by our unity with Christ, We are united with Christ. Now we've seen we've been set free from sin. Now here in verse 4 we see that those who are no longer condemned are walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This verse says, in order that, gives the purpose or the results of God's work in condemning sin in the flesh. So we've seen for, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, God has worked such that there is no condemnation, there is no pronouncement of guilt, there is no carrying out of that punishment either that we deserve, and instead God poured out that condemnation on his own son and condemned sin in in the flesh of his son. And so when Paul says that all of this was, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, we can very easily assume that Paul is referring to Christ's righteousness given to us, thus fulfilling the law of God on, on our behalf right? What theologians often call double imputation. The central gospel truth that in the great exchange, our sin was imputed to Christ and such that he bore it on the cross in his flesh, but also that at the cross, his righteousness was imputed to, to us. The righteousness of a perfect and holy Son of God. 
such that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 again, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. In Romans 3, even in our book here, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So amen and amen to this great truth, this remarkable truth that Christ's righteousness is also imputed to us at salvation. And so I I believe this truth. It is a truth worth exploring, but this is not what Paul is talking about here in verse 4. Look closely closely here at verse 4. It says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, now not for us, right? What does it say? It says, in us. Now, these are two very different things. The righteous requirement of the law being filled on our behalf or for us, that is double imputation. But the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us makes us the agents or the vessels or the displays by which the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. So what is Paul saying here? Make no mistake, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled for us, but that's sort of the truth that Paul has summarized in verses 2 and 3, right? The result here in verse 4 of all of that salvation work is that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us. There's fruit in our lives, there's evidence in our walk, as we in verse 4 walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So these righteous requirements here in verse 4 are not requirements in the legal or condemnation or syllabus even sort of sense, but instead they're requirements in the sense that they are what God through the law demands that we do. This is what God has declared is right. These are his rightful and righteous demands of his people. Now turn to Romans 13, very briefly, to see that not only is this a grammatical sort of distinction we need to make to make sure we get this passage right, Romans 13 helps us to fill out our view of what verse 4 in Romans 8 means. Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore... Love is the fulfilling of the law. Flip back to Romans 8. Now, I know we have the full canon of Scripture advantage here, right? We're not reading Paul's letter for the first time. But it helps us to see that, indeed, we are not under law but under grace, and yet we are to fulfill God's law. Romans 13, in its sum, we are to live a life of love. And in addition, in Romans 13, we see that there is this valid concept of fulfilling God's law. Now, how is that? As those who have no condemnation status before a merciful God, Paul says we walk by his spirit here in Romans 8. So we desire, we love to fulfill his righteous requirements. And the fulfillment of the, law of, of the law is a life of love that demonstrates to others and shows others God's love for us. You see, God did not just condemn sin in the flesh so that we might have the righteousness of Christ and therefore have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled for us as if it, we were the primary beneficiaries. 
us. God sent his son to die. God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us in order that, that we might demonstrate his gospel with our lives, in order that we might not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, in order that we might walk the way of righteousness, a life of love, a life lived according to his righteous demands, a life reflecting his character and nature, in order that we might see that as Christians, the one thing we owe everyone is love for our neighbor because it reflects God's love for us. And that by all these demonstrations of gospel-induced love, we might show that we submit to God's law in our hearts and minds. And we'll see that all over our text next week, that we must submit to God's law. And by all these demonstrations of gospel-induced love, God will receive glory. And the Spirit of God as well is shown to indeed dwell in us, that we would be assured of God's good grace in the gospel to us. You see, this is the Spirit's amazing work in our lives, that as we believe the gospel, he produces increasing evidence. He, he produces abounding fruit that assures us that God has indeed set us free from sin. Notice also here how this is possible. How can we walk according to the Spirit? It's by the Spirit's power. It's not according to the flesh. Not in terms of pursuing fleshly desires, but it's also not according to the power of our own flesh. Even as Christians, it's in accordance with God's ways and according to the power of the Spirit. It's what Romans 1.5 and 16.26 call the obedience of faith. Such a packed phrase. I love that phrase. The obedience of faith. This is joyful obedience that stems from true faith in Christ. And so we'll see this truth reverberate all throughout chapter 8, how the Christian life is life in the Spirit. As those no longer condemned, the Spirit works in us to desire to obey God, to want to walk in His ways. And so we walk according to the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit's working in us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There is a concept um, in psychology called the imposter phenomenon. The imposter phenomenon. It's the feeling of being a fraud. That one doesn't de deserve or belong in a position or deserve an opportunity. And it's estimated that nearly 70% of people experience the imposter phenomenon. This happens in academic or professional settings, and it's often brought on by a new environment. So when you get that internship, you feel like you don't deserve that internship. When you get accepted into a school or a program, you feel like you don't deserve the acceptance into that school or program or major. Now the imposter cycle as it's called, goes like this. First, the individual is given an assignment or an achievement-based task, and feelings of anxiety, self-doubt, and worry begin to flood the individual. Now, the individual responds in one of two ways. They either respond by over-preparation or by procrastination. The individual who responds with over-preparation completes the task, and simply attributes it all to really, 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 really hard work. The individual who responds with procrastination goes into a frenetic, sort of frantic effort to complete the task, 
and then when done, uh, attributes it completely to luck. Now either way, success is not seen as a matter of true personal ability. Any positive feedback given is discounted by the individual. And so the cycle continues and continues and continues. And with each cycle, doubt and depression and anxiety come. Any success intensifies the sort of fraudulent feeling. And at any point in time, the person feels they can be exposed for who they really are. Now, whether the imposter phenomenon is conceptually legitimate or not, uh, it does sound like a really good way of summing up the college experience. There's a much more real, much more eternally significant version of the so-called imposter phenomenon that I know many of us encounter as Christians. Hypocrisy, doubt, going through the motions, seeing that we do rightly deserve the condemnation of a holy God, that we don't deserve the grace of God because we struggle with a particular sin, that there's no way God should love us, that there's no way we'd have the spiritual influence we have if others knew our struggles. And a similar set of responses even occurs. Over-preparation, so to speak, more spiritual activity, a busy mind during the day, forced productivity, measuring stewardship, or so-called procrastination, a spiritual paralysis, a, a numbing inability to pinpoint the root of our struggles. Well, the imposter ph- phenomenon in psychology centers on the idea that in any, at any given point in time, the person can be exposed for their lack of ability, their lack of competence, their lack of legitimacy, of qualification. As if to imply, most individuals who do experience this, in psychology at least, have adequate personal ability, meaning they do belong. They are legit. They are competent. Or at least they have the ability to justify the position that they got or to vindicate their own position or qualification. The beauty and the truth of what we have seen tonight in God's Word in Romans 8 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not leave us to prove our own adequacy or personal ability or spiritual activity. It instead points us to the unbelievable mercy of a God who condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son to die so that we would be set free from sin and given to walk according to the power of the Spirit. When you fear the condemnation you do rightly deserve, this is God's good word for you tonight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.